questions don't qualify. It's free and only 10 questions to get started. Cancellations, baggage delays, unexpected illnesses. Problems can happen anywhere, even on the mission field. But you can rest easier knowing your trip is protected. Faith Ventures provides comprehensive travel insurance plans for short-term missions starting at just $30. Compare our plans today. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation Smart Home Program provides mortgage-free smart homes to catastrophically injured veterans, such as U.S. Army Specialist Maggie Billiard, who was left critically injured by a suicide bomber, resulting in the loss of her left leg below the knee. Because of the generosity of our supporters, Maggie was presented with a mortgage-free smart home in 2022, where she was able to navigate her home without obstacles. To provide veterans like Maggie with the independence they deserve, donate $11 a month at T2T.org. That's T2T.org. Jesus paid and died for me. I see his wounds, his empty tomb. I saved the world, that cursed truth. His body bound, his rest was he. Yeah. 
Imagine if your couch could turn into courtside seats at an NBA game with Xfinity. If your living room could transform into Renaissance Venice from Assassin's Creed Nexus. If your hallway could be a long fairway in Golf Plus. Imagine if your breakfast nook could... Wait, you have a breakfast nook? Well, it's Godzilla Gorgons from Stranger Things VR in it. Do more than imagine. Expand your world with the new MetaQuest 3. Now with over 500 titles to dive into. See child safety guidance online. Accounts for 10 plus certain apps, games, and experiences may be suitable for a more mature audience. Think identity theft won't happen to you? Think again. There's a new victim every three seconds in the U.S., over 15 million this year alone, and many don't even know they're victims. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you could miss, even when you monitor your credit. If your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft, but everyone can save up to 25% off their first year. Go to LifeLock.com Spotify. Identity theft protection starts here.
Welcome to Flamin' Hot University, the only place where you'll learn how to unleash your flamin' hot. Discover new ways to add some spice to your everyday. And learn how to light up your fiery side. Oh, and the food can't be beat. You'll find layers of flavor and heat from all your favorites, like Cheetos, Doritos, and Ruffles Flamin' Hot. Flamin' Hot University. Tap the banner to start class today. Discover, this is Daniela. Hi, it's Jennifer Coolidge. I just want to thank you for making me feel so special. I earned cash back on debit for my dinner party groceries. That's great, but with Discover Cashback Debit, we give everyone cash back on everyday purchases. Anything else I can help you with? Do you like asparagus and mushroom sorbet? I've got leftovers. Introducing Discover Cashback Debit, a checking account with cash back. It pays to discover. Eligibility in terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Do we have any bananas at home? No, but I can order them on Instacart for delivery tonight. 
Oh, how about milk? Can do. I also added laundry detergent and snacks for the crew. Sweet. Go crew. Get weekly groceries and essentials delivered in as fast as one hour, so you can get back to what matters. Visit instacart.com for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart.
Imagine if your couch could turn into courtside seats at an NBA game with that stand on it. If your living room could transform into Renaissance Venice from Assassin's Creed Nexus. If your hallway could be a long fairway in golf clubs. Imagine if your breakfast snow could... Wait, you have a breakfast snow? Well, it's got Demogorgons from Stranger Things VR in it. Do more than imagine. Expand your world with the new MetaQuest Story. Now with over 500 titles to dive into. See child safety guidance online. Accounts for 10 plus. Certain apps, games, and experiences may be suitable for a more mature audience. With U.S. Cellular, it's just $19.99 per line for one, two, or three lines. So you don't need that robot daughter you built to get a fourth line for family plan pricing. Activating self-defense systems. Newborn. U.S. Cellular. Built for us. Terms apply. Visit uscellular.com for details. Well, good morning. Great to be with everybody this morning. If you'll join me. We'll go ahead and open up in a word of prayer this morning. So, Father God, we just come before you. And, God, we're grateful, again, that we can gather together to just worship you and sing praises to who you are. And then, God, we're also so grateful that you have preserved your word throughout generations so that we can read it in our own language. And, God, that we can understand what you are saying to us. So I just pray that this message be from you, and God, that our hearts open up to what you have to say. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this, amen. So have you ever met somebody and they just, that fuse is so short? Like, uh, apparently some of you are or have met somebody, but there's that, you know, you, you just come, maybe sometimes you come home and the wife has been, sorry wives, uh, the wife has been home with the kids all day and you think, hey, everything's great. So I'm going to walk in and just put everything all over the floor and I'm going to lay down and relax. And next thing you know, you're in trouble. And you're like, where in the world did that, I'm not speaking from experience or anything, but it's like, where in the world did that just come from? And then as you talk to your spouse and they're like, well, you see, your son was a little terror today and did not do anything I wanted and didn't eat through everything all over the place. And, and you learn that there's been this series of events that has not just all of a sudden got to where you're at, but it has built upon each other to where now you're just receiving what has been boiling up inside all day. And I, I open with that because whenever you flip to Jeremiah, as we're going to be in our passage today in Jeremiah and Lamentations, whenever, if you would just open up your Bible, have no understanding of anything, and start reading Jeremiah, you would have that question of, oh my goodness, what in the world just happened? Why is this God that I hear that is so loving, so kind, so merciful, why is he right now so angry? Why is he saying that judgment is going to come upon his people and that he is going to send them as slaves to a foreign nation? If you just open up Jeremiah without understanding any of the context, it really doesn't make sense. That's kind of how it is with all the prophets, in my opinion. 
that if you just open up to the prophets and you skip Genesis through Nehemiah, you don't really understand what's going on. And it can seem like God has this super short fuse. And you can maybe even have a mindset of, I don't want to make God mad. And I don't know what his fuse is. Maybe he's not merciful. Maybe he's not loving. Maybe he's not slow to anger. Maybe he's vengeful and hateful. And maybe he's just waiting for me to make that mistake and then he can wipe me out. And so what we're going to do before we get into Jeremiah is, again, we have to understand how did we get here? And so we're going to start very first words in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, notice those two words, God created. That is important to understand right there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you'll continue to see that through the following days that God created the earth and the sky. God created the land and the sea. God created everything, and we have to understand that. It's not in the beginning man came up with this idea of a God. It's not that we did anything. It is that in the beginning, God created, and he's building up, and all of a sudden, God created in his image man and woman. And he said, everything is very good. And he said, you can live in the garden that I have created, paradise on earth, and you have dominion over everything. And really, there's just one rule. Don't eat of that tree. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. And then the serpent comes along and starts questioning, did God really say, don't you think God's just holding something back from you because he doesn't truly care about you? And he starts morphing. We already have scripture. That God said, you shall have dominion over everything, but don't eat that. That's scripture. And Satan comes in and starts morphing scripture. Did God really mean that when he said that? And so out of one rule, we, we kind of like to think like, man, if there was only one rule, I wouldn't break it. That's not the case. Adam and Eve only had one rule, and they broke it. My son Isaiah really only has one rule, and he breaks it every single day. I break one rule, don't speed, and I can't even obey that one. If there were no other rule, I'd still break it. And so we see that man breaks the one rule. And so they realize we are naked and we are ashamed. Because they were naked and unashamed, and all of a sudden they break that one commandment, do not eat of that, and they eat of it, and they realize, wait a minute, whoa, we are naked and we are ashamed. So they try to cover themselves with fig leaves. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, notice again what it says. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. They tried covering it themselves. They were unable to. So God steps in, and he is faithful. He doesn't wipe them out. They broke the one rule. They're 100% at breaking every single rule that exists at that time. And yet God says, I'm going to cover over your nakedness. And so then they continue on, and you move on down the line, generations, and all of a sudden you get to Genesis chapter 6. And there's this, like, heavy verse where it says, the Lord saw, this is the state of man, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every thought and intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's not just like a little bit here and there, it's like every thought 
always continually was evil. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And so he said, I'm going to wipe out the entire earth. But he even shows grace in that by saving eight people. And he says, go into this ark and I will protect you. And he shut the door. And then the rains came, the floods rose, everything perished except for what was on that ark. And then they get ready to come out. And so God makes a covenant with them. He promises, he gives his word that we still see today in the skies when it rains. I establish my covenant. Who's making the covenant? Again, it's God. I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all the flesh be cut off the waters of the flood and never by the water by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and earth. And so God makes this covenant. And then you continue on the generations from Shem. And then you get to this guy named Abram, who is nobody. And God calls him out of being nothing and says, through you, I'm going to make an amazing nation. Genesis chapter 17. This guy is 90 year, 99 years old, and God appears to him and says, I am the Lord God Almighty, not you. I'm the one and only. I am the Lord God Almighty. I am the one that created everything. I am the one that provided for you. I am the one that preserved your lineage through the flood. He says, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. He says, behold, my covenant is with you. This is verse four. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Notice the repetition of what God does here. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. And then verse eight, I will give to you and to your offspring after the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And so again, God is choosing these people. And then a couple generations later, they go into Egypt and they grow to become this mighty nation, so much so that Egypt freaks out about it and starts putting them in bondage. And so this people cries out to God to deliver them. And in Psalm chapter 78, we get God delivering them. It's a, it's a recap of what he did. And he said, in the sight of their fathers, God performed Wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rocks and he caused waters to flow down the rivers. He delivered them by nothing that they could have done on their own. He sent them out and he did so and they were wealthy because he said, right before you go out, you are going to plunder all of the Egyptians. They're gonna give you jewelry and they're gonna give you goods. You're not even gonna lift a sword and you will plunder them. 
They're the most powerful nation at this time. And without them even raising a weapon, Egypt is destroyed pretty much. And Israel is now super wealthy. And so they go into the wilderness and God says, when you are in the wilderness, I am going to lead you into the promised land. And he says, be faithful to me. He makes a covenant with them in Exodus chapter 20. Again, he's reminding them who is creator, who is sovereign, who is over everything. He says in Exodus 20 verse 2, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. He keeps reminding them of his track record, reminding them who he is and who they are. You really are a nobody. I'm the creator of everything. But I've called you. I've chose you. I've led you. I have been faithful to you. And so then he makes this covenant with them. He gives them the law. And in Leviticus chapter 26, he says, if you walk, According to my commandments and statutes, and you observe my commandments and you do them. And he goes on to say, I will send rains in the springtime. Your harvest will be plentiful. I will guide you. I will govern you. I will be with you. All you have to do is be obedient to me. We've already seen, though, the track record of man. We have one law and we cannot keep it. And here God is giving them these commandments and he is saying, if you are faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. But as you know the story of Israel, they rebel against God. And so God makes them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Psalm 78 again. It says that after God led them in the wilderness, he provided, he delivered. It says, yet they sinned still more against God. They rebelled against the Most High in the wilderness. And so God wipes out an entire generation because of their rebellion. And then he opens up the promised land to the next generation. And he says, upon entering, I will go before you in war. I will give you victory. All you have to do is wipe out these nations. Because if you don't, their foreign gods will infiltrate into your worship and you will pervert the worship of the one true God. And we see yet again, they go in but they're not faithful. They do not fully obey God. Judges chapter two, God says, I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. He's saying, I'm faithful. Not once in this entire time have I broke what I said to you. But how have you responded? You have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides because you refuse to obey. And their gods shall be a snare to you. And then Judges chapter two, verse 13, this is how they respond. They abandoned the Lord and they served Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And then in verse 16, it says that they would cry out, so the Lord raised up judges. Why are they in this predicament? Because of their sin. Because they refused to obey God, not just once, not just twice, not just three times. We are talking, we are like 3,000 years later and they are disobeying God, refusing. And so God hands them over and they're like, God, deliver us. So he raises up 
judges to save them. And he says, even though he raised up judges, even though he delivered them, even though they said, never again, God, we won't do that. It says, yet they did not listen to their judges. They did not listen to God for they whored after other gods and they bowed down to them. And then in verse 18, it said that whenever the Lord, again, remember key word there, the Lord raised up judges for them. The Lord was with the judges and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. God, again, even though they are unfaithful, God is continuing to be faithful to them. And he says, I am your king. I am your ruler. I am guiding over you. And finally, we get to 1 Samuel. Very heartbreaking words, it says. It says, we don't want to have you as our king, God. Can we be like every other nation? I mean, we saw that you guided us through the wilderness. We saw that you, what you did to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time, you wiped him out without us raising a sword. We have seen what you did to all these other kings of this territory that we are coming in. You are guiding us, but you know what, God, you're not good enough. Can we be like them? We want a king. We want somebody to guide us and lead over us. So they refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. God, we know we have the special relationship with you. We know that you are sovereign. You are the Lord Almighty. You are providing and protecting, but that's not enough. I want something else. I want more than everything you have to offer me, which is everything. I want to be like the rest of the people. And so then in verse 7, we kind of backtrack here. God says to Samuel, obey the voice of the people, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. And so then they get Saul who is supposed to lead them faithfully, but he fails to do though. Then they get David and God makes a covenant with David and says, you are a man after my own heart. So there will be a descendant of yours that will be on the throne. But then his actual descendants, his, his birth children, just wreak havoc on the nation. They said, we wanna be like a king or we wanna be like every other nation, give us a king. And for the next 600 years, their kings lead them to do evil in the sight of the Lord. For the next 600 years, they rebel against God. They turn their backs on God. They go after foreign gods. And in Jeremiah chapter 25, it says that God sent prophets. He said, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. This is for 600 years. Although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, they refused to listen. So it's not... Now we're in Jeremiah. It's not all of a sudden you open up Jeremiah and God's like, you know what? Today I decide to be really angry. I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It's like for the past 3,000 years, God has been faithful and working through these people. And for the past 3,000 years, they have rejected him. They have rebelled against him. They have turned their backs against him. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5, God says, what wrong did your fathers find in me? What, what have I done wrong to your fathers that they reject and turn away from me? And yet that's what they've done. You see the heart of God right there. He's like, I have poured out my heart for you. I have loved you unconditionally. I have came running after you. When you rejected me, 
And yet for the past 3,000 years, that's all I've got. And I've sent prophets to warn you, to say there's going to come a day when judgment falls upon you and you refuse to listen. And you even saw that the northern kingdom, Israel, I said that they were going to fall because of what they did. And that happened in 722 BC. And yet Judah, you refused to listen. You refused to turn your hearts back to me. And so Jeremiah chapter 25, God says, yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Israel, this, or Judah, Israel, I'm gonna say the same. This is coming upon you because of what you've done. I have been faithful, you have been unfaithful. So therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Now you understand what's going on in Jeremiah. That whenever you open up Jeremiah, you are talking about thousands of years of unfaithfulness. That God is saying judgment is coming and Jeremiah sees that judgment take place. And so if you're a note taker, we're going to start hitting the notes that Jeremiah tells us. And so first off, he sees the downfall of Jerusalem. And so he is called the weeping prophet because we know more about his personality. We know more about Jeremiah than anything, any other prophet as far as who he was personally. And the thing is, is that Jeremiah had to go to a people and say, Judgment is coming, and the people hated him for it. The people turned their back on him. The people tortured him for it. They exiled him for it. They shunned him for it, and yet he continues to come and say, judgment is coming. We are told that through the 40 years of Jeremiah's prophesying, we have no evidence. I skipped ahead a little bit here. We have no evidence of anyone responding. Zero. I mean, can you think of God telling you, hey, you're going to go for 40 years and you're going to witness to this people and you are just called to be faithful. But the thing is, they're not going to respond. But you need to go and speak my truth. For 40 years, we get tired sometimes after saying something five times and not being heard. And it's like, you know what? I just give up. I'm done. They're, 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 they're helpless. And yet here God says, Jeremiah, for 40 years, you're going to proclaim this message of judgment. And we have no evidence of anyone responding in that time. Jeremiah is actually the second longest book in the Bible as far as word count goes. The only one that precedes it is Psalm. It's kind of hard to beat 150 chapters. One that's like 172 verses. But yet Jeremiah is the second longest book in the Bible. Again, he covers 40 years. The dates are from 627. We have a specific dating about the reign of King Josiah. So this is the prosperous time. And for 40 plus years until roughly, we don't know for sure, but roughly 580 BC, he is prophesying. And he covers three phases in Judah's history during that time. 
If you remember during the reign of Josiah, he is the most faithful, the most righteous king. And so Jeremiah starts prophesying during that time. But there's this moment where Assyria and Egypt kind of tag team with each other and they go to battle against Babylon. And Josiah is like, you know what? I'm going to go join that battle. I'm going to try and stop them from becoming too powerful. And he dies. And so then his son, uh, Jeconiah, becomes king. I think I said that right. I'm probably wrong. Look back at it. It's in like 2 Kings chapter 24. But his son becomes king, and Egypt comes in and rules over Judah. And so then they make Jehoiakim king because they're like, no, this guy's not going to be king. We're going to take him away. And Jehoiakim becomes king, terrible king. Josiah, last good king that Judah has. Every other king from there on out just leads more and more to the downfall. So you have from 627 to 605, you have that time. Assyria and Egypt are threatening Judah. And then you have in 605, you have the first attack from Babylon. And this is where there is the first deportation of some of the Jews. And Daniel actually gets sent away at this time. And so that is 605 to 586. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon just start bashing Jerusalem and Judah. They just start attacking it. And so you have a deportation in 605. You have another one in 597. And finally, in 586 BC, you have the total destruction of Jerusalem, where they just come in. And God said in Jeremiah 25 that I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar and he is going to exile you. And that finally takes place in 586 BC. And that's the last stage where Jeremiah stays in Jerusalem and ministers to a destroyed nation because there were some left until finally he is exiled by his own people to Egypt. And so the biblical context, you have 2 Kings 21 through 25, that's the span that it talks about. But throughout his prophecy, you see one predominant theme, and that's the same thing that you've seen through all the other prophecies, judgment's coming. Because of your unfaithfulness, because of your disobedience, judgment is coming. But Jeremiah also hits hard on repent. It's not too late. Turn your heart back over to God. The outline of the book, you should read it. It takes quite a while to read it. But it really tells about what's going on at this time. Jeremiah chapter 1, you see the call of Jeremiah. God placing the call on his life. Then It's hard to break down because it does not follow a chronological order. He jumps through his dates. But what you have is they're kind of bunched together. You have the prophecies to Judah. And then after that, you have the prophecies to the Gentiles. And then lastly, he talks about the destruction, which is almost word for word identical to 2 Kings 24 through the end of 2 Kings. You have the fall or the destruction of Jerusalem. And then piggybacking on Jeremiah is Lamentations, in which you had Jeremiah prophesying about the coming destruction, Lamentations prophesies about, or talks about the destruction that has already come. He, Jeremiah, saw the final days of light under King Josiah, and then he witnessed the downfall of Judah, leading up to the gradual destruction and final exile of his own kinsmen at the hands of the Babylonians. The content, Lamentations, he's writing after the fall of Jerusalem, and so he's lamenting. He's writing five funeral songs, pouring out his heart about what he is seeing happen 
to his people. And what you have to understand is in Deuteronomy 28, God said, if you refuse to listen to me, again, all the way back there, if you do not obey, all of this is going to come upon you. And that's what we see in Lamentations. The ultimate fulfillment of the curses that happened in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And so when you read Lamentations, we need to see a reminder of us being called to be faithful to God. Because again, all of this stuff came on not because God was unfaithful. All of it came upon them because they were unfaithful to God. And so it should remind us of that. Jeremiah, again, looked ahead to the judgment of Jerusalem. Lamentations looks back at the judgment of Jerusalem. And then the five laments, the five funeral songs are the first one. He talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the second one, you see the anger of God being poured out. Then in the middle, you see this prayer for mercy, which has the beautiful uh, Lamentations 3, through 26, where he says, morning by morning, your mercies are new. Great is thy faithfulness. In the middle of this funeral song of him pouring out his heart, he reminds himself, God, you are faithful. This is not because we were faithful. This is because we were unfaithful. You are faithful. And then you have the siege of Jerusalem. He kind of plays that out again. And then the last one, he says a prayer for restoration. And so that is the content, that is the context of what is going on in Jeremiah and Lamentations. And it's all about judgment. But in the middle of it, there's this hope. Because why did all of this happen? It happened because of the old covenant. Not that the old covenant was bad, but it happened because they were unable to keep the old covenant. Can you imagine living under that old covenant where you have 10 commandments? How many of you have obeyed every single 10 commandment? We could do a test real quick. How many of you have only broke one? How many, like when we look at it, we've pretty much broken all 10, especially when it's like, well, I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered. And then Jesus throws in the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at somebody with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you are angry with your brother without cause, you committed murder in your heart. It is the same thing to God. And suddenly it's like, okay, I have failed. Like not just failed, like barely hitting the curve, like failed with flying colors. I'm really good at failing. And so imagine living under that, where it's like I'm unable to, and God continuing to have patience with you, but being like, there's going to come a day where judgment is going to come upon you. If you don't obey these, if you don't keep these, and it's like, God, the more I try and keep them, the more I fail. The more I try and live by your standard, the more I fail. And that's what Jeremiah is saying, is that judgment is coming, but in the middle of it, Jeremiah chapter 31 he gives this, this futuristic view of this new covenant that is not found in keeping the law, but it's found in what God does. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the one that I made with their fathers on the days when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We have hope in that passage that even through all of this judgment, even through all of this unfaithfulness on mankind's part, God says there's going to come a day where it's not going to be dependent on if you are able to be faithful to my covenant, if you are able to score a 70 or above, which was never the case. It was 100 or nothing. He says there's going to come a day where I'm going to write my law on your heart, where I'm going to guide you from within. I will be your God. I will rule you. I will come back to you. In the midst of all this suffering, in the midst of all this judgment, in the midst of all this like just righteous anger from God, he says, but there's going to come a day where I will institute my new covenant with you. And it is only going to be based on my faithfulness. It's going to be based on who I am. And I am going to show you this new covenant. I'm going to send my son because in order for this new covenant to take place, the old has to be fulfilled. And we can't do that. We've already proven we can't even score 8 out of 10. We can't even score 5 out of 10. And yet, we need somebody to come and score 10 out of 10. And that's Jesus. He came to fulfill the old covenant. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to do away with the old law, to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. I have come to perfectly live out what you could not live out. I have come to do what you could not do ever. Even if you had 50 billion lifetimes, you would never be able to fulfill this. So I came to fulfill it for you so that there could be a new covenant. Romans chapter 8 tells us God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, Jesus came in. And as we remembered when we partook in communion, he ushered in a new covenant that is based not on your efforts, not on your sweat, not on your tears, but by his blood. He says, take drink. This is my blood, the new covenant that I have set forth for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's something like that. Paraphrasing it there. But he is saying, I'm ushering in a new covenant based on what I do, not based on what you can do. And he says, therefore, you are able to freely live for me. It's not based on do's and don'ts. It's based on just live for me. Let my spirit come inside of you. It's not moral regulations that we're trying to clean up the outside, kind of like trying to polish up a turd on the inside. It's still what it is. But instead, he says, I'm going to come into you and I'm going to make you a new creation. Second, Second Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That he changes us from within. 
That's what Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. It is probably my favorite passage in the Bible. Because it says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We just saw that for the first 3,000 years where mankind rebels against God, where they continue to reject him. They are dead in the sins and trespasses in which they once walked. They were carrying out the desires of their bodies and their minds. They were walking the ways against against this world. They were by nature children of wrath. That's how we were. And then verse four, but God, that we were headed for death. We were headed for eternal destruction, but God being rich in mercy, not because of how great we are, but because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, he made us alive. He did the work. He transformed us. He brought in this new covenant for us. It's not based on works. That's what verse 9 says. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. He has ushered it in. That when you read Jeremiah, you see all of this, this judgment, but you see this hope of a new covenant not based on trying to measure ourselves up good enough for God because it doesn't work, but based on Jesus paying the ultimate price. Jesus coming and fulfilling the Old Testament law so that we can now be ushered into the new covenant where God writes it on our hearts so that no longer do you have to try and perform for God. You get to freely live for him. So that Paul says in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Because of everything that has happened, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Live for God. Surrender over to him and live freely for him. That's what we get to live in. We have hope now. Whatever comes our way, we have a hope that we are right with God. That even when somebody cuts me off, and I I don't even act on it because I'm really holy and everything, but my mind starts to give people certain fingers and tell them what number they are. That it's like, oh man, I have just sinned against God, but I don't fear judgment. I have been forgiven. Now I repent of it, and I pray for the strength to be more like Christ in that time. And so I ask God to transform my heart more and more. That is the work of sanctification. That at salvation, when you give your life over to Jesus, you have been justified, you have been declared righteous, and then you are sanctified. You continue to be made more and more like Christ as you surrender to the Holy Spirit. You're saved right here. Now you are just becoming more and more like Christ as you surrender more and more to the Holy Spirit because there's that battle inside of you, the flesh in the spirit where Paul says, I know what I ought to do, but I don't do it. I don't know why I keep doing what I don't want to do or why I keep doing what I don't want to do, but I don't do what I want to do. And finally, he's like, man, who's gonna deliver me from this? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can save us. He's the only one that we can find hope. And he is the only reason you can have a right relationship with God today. Not based on your efforts, based solely on what Jesus did on the cross.
Place your faith in him if you have not. And if you have, surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit and be more and more transformed until he calls you home. And then you are ultimately glorified. You receive the new body that is not broken, doesn't know pain, but is ultimately like Christ and in his presence. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness through all of time. And God, that is a whole lot of information we just went over. But I pray that through your sovereign ability, you place it on our hearts of who you are. And God, you also, as, as people, we, we can get prideful. God, show us our depravity, that we need you as our savior, that we need you to transform us, to change our hearts. And all we do is surrender over to you. And God, that is a lifelong thing to do, a daily surrender to you. So God, I pray that's what every single one of us decides to do right here and now. Whether it's surrendering our eternity to you and giving our lives over to you and placing our faith in Jesus, or whether it's surrendering today to you and being more and more like you and then tomorrow doing the same. God, I pray that you work through us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.